Chapters 29 to 31 of The Golden Bough. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Golden Bough by Sir James Fraser. Chapter 29 The Myth of Adonis. The spectacle of the great changes which annually pass over the face of the earth has powerfully impressed the minds of men in all ages, and stirred them to meditate on the causes of transformations so vast and wonderful. Their curiosity has not been purely disinterested, for even the savage cannot fail to perceive how intimately his own life is bound up with the life of nature, and how the same processes, which freeze the stream and strip the earth of vegetation, menace him with extinction. At a certain stage of development, men seem to have imagined that the means of averting the threatened calamity were in their own hands, and that they could hasten or retard the flight of the seasons by magic art. Accordingly, they performed ceremonies and recited spells to make the rain to fall, the sun to shine, animals to multiply, and the fruits of the earth to grow. In course of time, the slow advance of knowledge, which has dispelled so many cherished illusions, convinced at least the more thoughtful portion of mankind that the alternations of summer and winter, of spring and autumn, were not merely the result of their own magical rites, but that some deeper cause, some mightier power, was at work behind the shifting scenes of nature. They now pictured to themselves the growth and decay of vegetation, the birth and death of living creatures, as effects of the waxing or waning strength of divine beings, of gods and goddesses, who were born and died, who married and begot children on the pattern of human life. Thus the old magical theory of the seasons was displaced, or rather supplemented, by a religious theory. For although men now attributed the annual cycle of change primarily to corresponding changes in their deities, they still thought that by performing certain magical rites they could aid the god who was the principle of life in his struggle with the opposing principle of death. They imagined that they could recruit his failing energies and even raise him from the dead. The ceremonies which they observed for this purpose were in substance a dramatic representation of the natural processes which they wished to facilitate, for it is a familiar tenet of magic that you can produce any desired effect by merely imitating it. And as they now explained the fluctuations of growth and decay, of reproduction and dissolution, by the marriage, the death, and the rebirth or revival of the gods, their religious or rather magical dramas turned in great measure on these themes. They set forth the fruitful union of the powers of fertility, the sad death of one at least of the divine partners, and his joyful resurrection. Thus a religious theory was blended with a magical practice. The combination is familiar in history 
Indeed, few religions have ever succeeded in wholly extricating themselves from the old trammels of magic. The inconsistency of acting on two opposite principles, however it may vex the soul of the philosopher, rarely troubles the common man. Indeed, he is seldom even aware of it. His affair is to act, not to analyze the motives of his action. If mankind had always been logical and wise, history would not be a long chronicle of folly and crime. Of the changes which the seasons bring with them, the most striking within the temperate zone are those which affect vegetation. The influence of the seasons on animals, though great, is not nearly so manifest. Hence it is natural that in the magical dramas designed to dispel winter and bring back spring, the emphasis should be laid on vegetation, and that trees and plants should figure in them more prominently than beasts and birds. Yet the two sides of life, the vegetable and the animal, were not dissociated in the minds of those who observed the ceremonies. Indeed, they commonly believed that the tie between the animal and the vegetable world was even closer than it really is. Hence they often combined the dramatic representations of reviving plants with a real or a dramatic union of the sexes, for the purpose of furthering at the same time and by the same act the multiplication of fruits, of animals, and of men. To them, the principle of life and fertility, whether animal or vegetable, was one and indivisible. To live and to cause to live, to eat food and to beget children, these were the primary wants of men in the past, and they will be the primary wants of men in the future, so long as the world lasts. Other things may be added to enrich and beautify human life, but unless these wants are first satisfied, humanity itself must cease to exist. These two things, therefore, food and children, were what men chiefly sought to procure by the performance of magical rites for the regulation of the seasons. Nowhere apparently have these rites been more widely and solemnly celebrated than in the lands which border the eastern Mediterranean. Under the names of Osiris, Tammuz, Adonis, and Attis, the peoples of Egypt and Western Asia represented the yearly decay and revival of life, especially of vegetable life, which they personified as a god who annually died and rose again from the dead. In name and detail, the rites varied from place to place. In substance they were the same. The supposed death and resurrection of this oriental deity, a god of many names but of essentially one nature, is now to be examined. We begin with Tammuz, or Adonis. The worship of Adonis was practiced by the Semitic peoples of Babylonia and Syria, and the Greeks borrowed it from them as early as the seventh century before Christ. The true name of the deity was Tammuz. The appellation of Adonis is merely the Semitic Adon, Lord, a title of honor by which his worshippers addressed him. But the Greeks, through a misunderstanding, converted the title of honor into a proper name. In the religious literature of Babylonia, Tammuz appears as the youthful spouse or lover of Ishtar, the great mother goddess, 
the embodiment of the reproductive energies of nature. The references to their connection with each other in myth and ritual are both fragmentary and obscure, but we gather from them that every year Tammuz was believed to die, passing away from the cheerful earth to the gloomy subterranean world, and that every year his divine mistress journeyed in quest of him, quote, to the land from which there is no returning, to the house of darkness, where dust lies on door and bolt. Unquote. During her absence, the passion of love ceased to operate. Men and beasts alike forgot to reproduce their kinds. All life was threatened with extinction. So intimately bound up with the goddess were the sexual functions of the whole animal kingdom that without her presence they could not be discharged. A messenger of the great god Ea was accordingly dispatched to rescue the goddess on whom so much depended. The stern queen of the infernal regions, Alatu, or Eresh Kigal by name, reluctantly allowed Ishtar to be sprinkled with the water of life and to depart, in company probably with her lover Tammuz, that the two might return together to the upper world, and that with their return all nature might revive. Laments for the departed Tammuz are contained in several Babylonian hymns, which liken him to plants that quickly fade. He is, quote, A tamarisk that in the garden has drunk no water, whose crown in the field has brought forth no blossom, a willow that rejoiced not by the watercourse, a willow whose roots were torn up, a herb that in the garden had drunk no water. Unquote. His death appears to have been annually mourned to the shrill music of flutes by men and women about midsummer in the month named after him, the month of Tammuz. The dirges were seemingly chanted over an effigy of the dead god, which was washed with pure water anointed with oil, and clad in a red robe, while the fumes of incense rose into the air as if to stir his dormant senses by their pungent fragrance and wake him from the sleep of death. In one of these dirges, inscribed Lament of the Flutes for Tammuz, we seem still to hear the voices of the singers chanting the sad refrain and to catch, like faraway music, the wailing notes of the flutes. Quote, At his vanishing away she lifts up a lament. O oh, my child! At his vanishing away she lifts up a lament. My Damu! At his vanishing away she lifts up a lament. My enchanter and priest! At his vanishing away she lifts up a lament. At the shining cedar rooted in a spacious place, in Iana above and below, she lifts up a lament. Like the lament that a house lifts up for its master, lifts she up a lament. Like the lament that a city lifts up for its lord, lifts she up a lament. Her lament is the lament for a herb that grows not in the bed. Her lament is the lament for the corn that grows not in the ear. Her chamber is a possession that brings not forth a possession, a weary woman, a weary child forspent. Her lament is for a great river where no willows grow. Her lament is for a field where corn and herbs grow not. Her lament is for a pool where fishes grow not. 
Her lament is for a thicket of reeds where no reeds grow. Her lament is for woods where tamarisks grow not. Her lament is for a wilderness where no cypresses grow. Her lament is for the depth of a garden of trees where honey and wine grow not. Her lament is for meadows where no plants grow. Her lament is for a palace where length of life grows not. Unquote. The tragical story and the melancholy rites of Adonis are better known to us from the descriptions of Greek writers than from the fragments of Babylonian literature or the brief reference of the prophet Ezekiel, who saw the women of Jerusalem weeping for Tammuz at the north gate of the temple. Mirrored in the glass of Greek mythology, the oriental deity appears as a comely youth beloved by Aphrodite. In his infancy the goddess hid him in a chest, which she gave in charge to Persephone, queen of the netherworld. But when Persephone opened the chest and beheld the beauty of the babe, she refused to give him back to Aphrodite, though the goddess of love went down herself to hell to ransom her dear one from the power of the grave. The dispute between the two goddesses of love and death was settled by Zeus, who decreed that Adonis should abide with Persephone in the underworld for one part of the year, and with Aphrodite in the upper world for another part. At last the fair youth was killed in hunting by a wild boar, or by the jealous Ares, who turned himself into the likeness of a boar in order to compass the death of his rival. Bitterly did Aphrodite lament her loved and lost Adonis, in this form of the myth, the contest between Aphrodite and Persephone for the possession of Adonis clearly reflects the struggle between Ishtar and Alatu in the land of the dead, while the decision of Zeus that Adonis is to spend one part of the year underground and another part above ground is merely a Greek version of the annual disappearance and reappearance of Tammuz. Chapter 30 Adonis in Syria the myth of Adonis was localized and his rites celebrated with much solemnity at two places in western Asia. One of these was Byblus on the coast of Syria, the other was Paphos in Cyprus. Both were great seats of worship of Aphrodite, or rather her Semitic counterpart, Astarte. And of both, if we accept the legends, Cinerus, the father of Adonis, was king. Of the two cities, Byblus was the more ancient, indeed it claimed to be the oldest city in Phoenicia, and to have been founded in the early ages of the world by the great god El, whom Greeks and Romans identified with Cronus and Saturn, respectively. However that may have been, in historical times it ranked as a holy place, the religious capital of the country, the Mecca or Jerusalem of the Phoenicians. The city stood on a height beside the sea, and contained a great sanctuary of Astarte, where in the midst of a spacious open court, surrounded by cloisters and approached from below by staircases, rose a tall cone or obelisk, the holy image of the goddess. In this sanctuary the rites of Adonis were celebrated. Indeed the whole city was sacred to him, and the river Nar Ibrahim, which falls into the sea a little to the south of Byblus, bore in antiquity the name of Adonis. This was the kingdom of Cinerus. From the earliest to the latest times the city appears to have been ruled by kings, assisted perhaps by a senate, or council of elders. 
The last king of Byblus bore the ancient name of Cinerus, and was beheaded by Pompey the Great for his tyrannous excesses. His legendary namesake, Cinerus, is said to have founded a sanctuary of Aphrodite, that is, of Astarte, at a place on Mount Lebanon, distant a day's journey from the capital. The spot was probably Afaka, at the source of the river Adonis, halfway between Byblus and Baalbek, for at Afaka there was a famous grove and sanctuary of Astarte, which Constantine destroyed on account of the flagitious character of the worship. The site of the temple has been discovered by modern travelers near the miserable village which still bears the name of Afka, at the head of the wild, romantic, wooded gorge of the Adonis. The hamlet stands among groves of noble walnut trees on the brink of the Lynn. A little way off the river rushes from a cavern at the foot of a mighty amphitheater of towering cliffs to plunge in a series of cascades into the awful depths of the glen. The deeper it descends, the ranker and denser grows the vegetation, which, sprouting from the crannies and fissures of the rocks, spreads a green veil over the roaring or murmuring stream in the tremendous chasm below. There is something delicious, almost intoxicating, in the freshness of these tumbling waters, in the sweetness and purity of the mountain air, in the vivid green of the vegetation. The temple, of which some massive hewn blocks and a fine column of sienite granite still mark the site, occupied a terrace facing the source of the river and commanding a magnificent prospect. Across the foam and the roar of the waterfalls, you look up to the cavern and away to the top of the sublime precipices above. So lofty is the cliff that the goats which creep along its ledges to browse on the bushes appear like ants to the spectator hundreds of feet below. Seaward, the view is especially impressive when the sun floods the profound gorge with golden light, revealing all the fantastic buttresses and rounded towers of its mountain rampart, and falling softly on the varied green of the woods which clothe its depths. It was here that, According to the legend, Adonis met Aphrodite for the first or the last time, and here his mangled body was buried. A fairer scene could hardly be imagined for a story of tragic love and death. Yet, sequestered as the valley is, and must always have been, it is not wholly deserted. A convent or a village may be observed here and there, standing out against the sky on the top of some beetling crag, or clinging to the face of a nearly perpendicular cliff high above the foam and the din of the river. And at evening the lights that twinkle through the gloom betray the presence of human habitations on slopes which might seem inaccessible to man. In antiquity, the whole of the lovely vale appears to have been dedicated to Adonis, and to this day it is haunted by his memory, for the heights which shut it in are crested at various points by ruined monuments of his worship, some of them overhanging dreadful abysses, down which it turns the head dizzy to look and see the eagles wheeling about their nests far below. One such monument exists at Guinea. The face of a great rock, above a roughly hewn recess, is here carved with figures of Adonis and Aphrodite. He is portrayed with spear in rest, 
awaiting the attack of a bear, while she is seated in an attitude of sorrow. Her grief-stricken figure may well be the mourning Aphrodite of the Lebanon described by Macrobius, and the recess in the rock is perhaps her lover's tomb. Every year, in the belief of his worshippers, Adonis was wounded to death in the mountains, and every year the face of nature itself was dyed with his sacred blood. So, year by year, the Syrian damsels lamented his untimely fate, while the red anemone, his flower, bloomed among the cedars of Lebanon, and the river ran red to the sea, fringing the winding shores of the blue Mediterranean, whenever the wind set in shore with a sinuous band of crimson. Chapter 31 Adonis in Cyprus The island of Cyprus lies but one day's sail from the coast of Syria. Indeed, on fine summer evenings its mountains may be descried looming low and dark against the red fires of sunset. With its rich mines of copper and its forests of firs and stately cedars, the island naturally attracted a commercial and maritime people like the Phoenicians, while the abundance of its corn, its wine, and its oil must have rendered it, in their eyes, a land of promise by comparison with the niggardly nature of their own rugged coast, hemmed in between the mountains and the sea. Accordingly, they settled in Cyprus at a very early date, and remained there long after the Greeks had also established themselves on its shores, for we know from inscriptions and coins that Phoenician kings reigned at Citium, the Chittim of the Hebrews, down to the time of Alexander the Great. Naturally, the Semitic colonists brought their gods with them from the motherland. They worshipped Baal of the Lebanon, who may well have been Adonis, and at Amathus, on the south coast, they instituted the rites of Adonis and Aphrodite, or rather Astarte. Here, as at Byblus, these rites resembled the Egyptian worship of Osiris so closely that some people even identified the Adonis of Amathus with Osiris. But the great seat of the worship of Aphrodite and Adonis in Cyprus was Paphos, on the southwestern side of the island. Among the petty kingdoms into which Cyprus was divided from the earliest times until the end of the fourth century before our era, Paphos must have ranked with the best. It is a land of hills and billowy ridges, diversified by fields and vineyards, and intersected by rivers, which in the course of ages have carved for themselves beds of such tremendous depth that traveling in the interior is difficult and tedious. The lofty range of Mount Olympus, the modern Troodos, capped with snow the greater part of the year, screens Paphos from the northerly and easterly winds and cuts it off from the rest of the island. On the slopes of the range the last pine woods of Cyprus linger, sheltering here and there monasteries in scenery not unworthy of the Apennines. The old city of Paphos occupied the summit of a hill about a mile from the sea. The newer city sprang up at the harbor some ten miles off. The sanctuary of Aphrodite at Old Paphos, the modern Kuklia, was one of the most celebrated shrines in the ancient world. According to Herodotus, it was founded by Phoenician colonists from Ascalon, 
but it is possible that the native goddess of fertility was worshipped on the spot before the arrival of the Phoenicians, and that the newcomers identified her with their own Balath, or Astarte, whom she may have closely resembled. If two deities were thus fused in one, we may suppose that they were both varieties of that great goddess of motherhood and fertility whose worship appears to have been spread all over Western Asia from a very early time. The supposition is confirmed as well by the archaic shape of her image as by the licentious character of her rites, for both that shape and those rites were shared by her with other Asiatic deities. Her image was simply a white cone or pyramid. In like manner, a cone was the emblem of Astarte at Byblus, of the native goddess whom the Greeks called Artemis at Perga in Pamphylia, and of the sun-god Heliogabalus at Emisa in Syria. Conical stones, which apparently served as idols, have also been found at Golgi in Cyprus, and in the Phoenician temples of Malta, and cones of sandstone came to light at the shrine of the mistress of turquoise among the barren hills and frowning precipices of Sinai. In Cyprus it appears that before marriage all women were formerly obliged by custom to prostitute themselves to strangers at the sanctuary of the goddess, whether she went by the name of Aphrodite, Astarte, or what not. Similar customs prevailed in many parts of Western Asia. Whatever its motive, the practice was clearly regarded not as an orgy of lust, but as a solemn religious duty performed in the service of that great mother-goddess of Western Asia whose name varied, while her type remained constant from place to place. Thus at Babylon every woman, whether rich or poor, had once in her life to submit to the embraces of a stranger at the temple of Melita, that is, of Ishtar or Astarte, and to dedicate to the goddess the wages earned by this sanctified harlotry. The sacred precinct was crowded with women waiting to observe the custom. Some of them had to wait there for years. At Heliopolis, or Baalbek in Syria, famous for the imposing grandeur of its ruined temples, the custom of the country required that every maiden should prostitute herself to a stranger at the temple of Astarte, and matrons as well as maids testified their devotion to the goddess in the same manner. The emperor Constantine abolished the custom, destroyed the temple, and built a church in its stead. In Phoenician temples, women prostituted themselves for hire in the service of religion, believing that by this conduct they propitiated the goddess and won her favor. Quote, it was a law of the Amorites that she who was about to marry should sit in fornication seven days by the gate. Unquote. At Byblus, the people shaved their heads in the annual mourning for Adonis. Women who refused to sacrifice their hair had to give themselves up to strangers on a certain day of the festival, and the money which they thus earned was devoted to the goddess. A Greek inscription found at Tralus in Lydia proves that the practice of religious prostitution survived in that country as late as the second century of our era. It records of a certain woman Aurelia Amelia by name, not only that she herself served the god in the capacity of a harlot at his express command, but that her mother and other female ancestors had done the same before her, 
and the publicity of the record, engraved on a marble column which supported a votive offering, shows that no stain attached to such a life and such a parentage. In Armenia the noblest families dedicated their daughters to the service of the goddess Anaitis, in her temple of Asilicina, where the damsels acted as prostitutes for a long time before they were given in marriage. Nobody scrupled to take one of these girls to wife when her period of service was over. Again, the goddess Ma was served by a multitude of sacred harlots at Comana in Pontus, and crowds of men and women flocked to her sanctuary from the neighboring cities and country to attend the biennial festivals or to pay their vows to the goddess. If we survey the whole of the evidence on this subject, some of which has still to be laid before the reader, we may conclude that a great mother goddess, the personification of all the reproductive energies of nature, was worshipped under different names but with a substantial similarity of myth and ritual by many peoples of Western Asia, that associated with her was a lover, or rather series of lovers, divine yet mortal, with whom she mated year by year, their commerce being deemed essential to the propagation of animals and plants, each in their several kind, and further that the fabulous union of the divine pair was simulated and, as it were, multiplied on earth by the real though temporary union of the human sexes at the sanctuary of the goddess, for the sake of thereby ensuring the fruitfulness of the ground and the increase of man and beast. At Paphos, the custom of religious prostitution is said to have been instituted by King Cinerus and to have been practiced by his daughters, the sisters of Adonis, who, having incurred the wrath of Aphrodite, mated with strangers and ended their days in Egypt. In this form of the tradition the wrath of Aphrodite is probably a feature added by a later authority, who could only regard conduct which shocked his own moral sense as a punishment inflicted by the goddess, instead of as a sacrifice regularly enjoined by her on all her devotees. At all events, the story indicates that the princesses of Paphos had to conform to the custom as well as women of humble birth. Among the stories which were told of Cinerus, the ancestor of the priestly king of Paphos and the father of Adonis, there are some that deserve our attention. In the first place, he is said to have begotten his son Adonis in incestuous intercourse with his daughter Myra at a festival of the corn goddess, at which women robed in white were wont to offer corn wreaths as first fruits of the harvest, and to observe strict chastity for nine days. Similar cases of incest with a daughter are reported of many ancient kings. It seems unlikely that such reports are without foundation, and perhaps equally improbable that they refer to mere fortuitous outbursts of unnatural lust. We may suspect that they are based on a practice actually observed for a definite reason in certain special circumstances. Now in countries where the royal blood was traced through women only, and where consequently the king held office merely in virtue of his marriage with an hereditary princess, who was the real sovereign, it appears to have often happened that a prince married his own sister, the princess royal, in order to obtain with her hand the crown which otherwise would have gone to another man, perhaps to a stranger. 
May not the same rule of descent have furnished a motive for incest with a daughter? For it seems a natural corollary from such a rule that the king was bound to vacate the throne on the death of his wife, the queen, since he occupied it only by virtue of his marriage with her. When that marriage terminated, his right to the throne terminated with it, and passed at once to his daughter's husband. Hence, if the king desired to reign after his wife's death, the only way in which he could legitimately continue to do so was by marrying his daughter, and thus prolonging through her the title which had formerly been his through her mother. Cinerus is said to have been famed for his exquisite beauty, and to have been wooed by Aphrodite herself. Thus it would appear, as scholars have already observed, that Cinerus was in a sense a duplicate of his handsome son Adonis, to whom the inflammable goddess also lost her heart. Further, these stories of the love of Aphrodite for two members of the royal house of Paphos can hardly be dissociated from the corresponding legend told of Pygmalion, a Phoenician king of Cyprus, who is said to have fallen in love with an image of Aphrodite and taken it to his bed. When we consider that Pygmalion was the brother-in-law of Cinerus, that the son of Cinerus was Adonis, and that all three, in successive generations, are said to have been concerned in a love intrigue with Aphrodite, we can hardly help concluding that the early Phoenician kings of Paphos, or their sons, regularly claimed to be not merely the priests of the goddess, but also her lovers. In other words, that in their official capacity they personated Adonis. At all events, Adonis is said to have reigned in Cyprus, and it appears to be certain that the title of Adonis was regularly borne by the sons of all the Phoenician kings of the island. It is true that the title strictly signifies no more than lord, yet the legends which connect these Cyprian princes with the goddess of love make it probable that they claimed the divine nature as well as the human dignity of Adonis. The story of Pygmalion points to a ceremony of a sacred marriage, in which the king wedded the image of Aphrodite, or rather of Astarte. If that was so, the tale was, in a sense, true, not of a single man only, but of a whole series of men, and it would be all the more likely to be told of Pygmalion, if that was a common name of Semitic kings in general, and of Cyprian kings in particular. Pygmalion, at all events, is known as the name of the king of Tyre, from whom his sister Dido fled, and a king of Citium and Idalium in Cyprus, who reigned in the time of Alexander the Great, was also called Pygmalion, or rather Pumiathon, the Phoenician name which the Greeks corrupted into Pygmalion. Further, it deserves to be noted that the names Pygmalion and Astarte occur together in a Punic inscription on a gold medallion which was found in a grave at Carthage, the characters of the inscription are of the earliest type. As the custom of religious prostitution at Paphos is said to have been founded by King Cinerus and observed by his daughters, we may surmise that the kings of Paphos played the part of the divine bridegroom in a less innocent rite than the form of marriage with a statue. In fact, that at certain festivals each of them had to mate with one or more of the sacred harlots of the temple, who played Astarte to his Adonis. If that was so, 
there is more truth than has commonly been supposed in the reproach cast by the Christian fathers that the Aphrodite worshipped by Cinerus was a common whore. The fruit of their union would rank as sons and daughters of the deity, and would in time become the parents of gods and goddesses, like their fathers and mothers before them. In this manner, Paphos, and perhaps all sanctuaries of the great Asiatic goddess where sacred prostitution was practiced, might be well stocked with human deities, the offspring of the divine king by his wives, concubines, and temple harlots. Any one of these might probably succeed his father on the throne, or be sacrificed in his stead whenever stress of war or other grave junctures called, as they sometimes did, for the death of a royal victim. Such a tax, levied occasionally on the king's numerous progeny for the good of the country, would neither extinguish the divine stock nor break the father's heart, who divided his paternal affection among so many. At all events, if, as there seems reason to believe, Semitic kings were often regarded at the same time as hereditary deities, it is easy to understand the frequency of Semitic personal names which imply that the bearers of them were the sons or daughters, the brothers or sisters, the fathers or mothers of a god, and we need not resort to the shifts employed by some scholars to evade the plain sense of the words. This interpretation is confirmed by a parallel Egyptian usage, for in Egypt, where the kings were worshipped as divine, the queen was called the wife of the god, or the mother of the god, and the title father of the god was born not only by the king's real father, but also by his father-in-law. Similarly, perhaps among the Semites any man who sent his daughter to swell the royal harem may have been allowed to call himself the father of the god. If we may judge by his name, the Semitic king who bore the name of Cinerus was, like King David, a harper, for the name of Cinerus is clearly connected with Greek Cinera, a liar, which in its turn comes from the Semitic Kinor, a liar, the very word applied to the instrument on which David played before Saul. We shall probably not err in assuming that at Paphos, as at Jerusalem, the music of the lyre or harp was not a mere pastime designed to while away an idle hour, but formed part of the service of religion, the moving influence of its melodies perhaps being set down, like the effect of wine, to the direct inspiration of a deity. Certainly at Jerusalem the regular clergy of the temple prophesied to the music of harps, of psalteries, and of cymbals. And it appears that the irregular clergy also, as we may call the prophets, depended on some such stimulus for inducing the ecstatic state which they took for immediate converse with the divinity. Thus we read of a band of prophets coming down from a high place with a psaltery, a timbrel, a pipe, and a harp before them, and prophesying as they went. Again, when the united forces of Judah and Ephraim were transversing the wilderness of Moab in pursuit of the enemy, they could find no water for three days, and were like to die of thirst, they and the beasts of burden. In this emergency the prophet Elisha, who was with the army, called for a minstrel and bade him play. 
Under the influence of the music, he ordered the soldiers to dig trenches in the sandy bed of the waterless wadi through which lay the line of march. They did so, and next morning the trenches were full of the water that had drained down into them from underground from the desolate, forbidding mountains on either hand. The prophet's successes in striking water in the wilderness resembles the reported success of modern dowsers, though his mode of procedure was different. Incidentally, he rendered another service to his countrymen, for the skulking Moabites from their lairs among the rocks saw the red sun of the desert reflected in the water, and, taking it for the blood, or perhaps rather for an omen of the blood, of their enemies, they plucked up heart to attack the camp, and were defeated with great slaughter. Again, just as the cloud of melancholy which from time to time darkened the moody mind of Saul was viewed as an evil spirit from the Lord vexing him, so, on the other hand, the solemn strains of the harp, which soothed and composed his troubled thoughts, may well have seemed to the hag-ridden king the very voice of God, or of his good angel whispering peace. Even in our own day a great religious writer, himself deeply sensitive to the witchery of music, has said that musical notes, with all their power to fire the blood and melt the heart, cannot be mere empty sounds and nothing more. No, they have escaped from some higher sphere. They are outpourings of eternal harmony, the voice of angels, the magnificat of saints. It is thus that the rude imaginings of primitive man are transfigured, and his feeble lispings echoed with a rolling reverberation in the musical prose of Newman. Indeed, the influence of music on the development of religion is a subject which would repay a sympathetic study, for we cannot doubt that this, the most intimate and affecting of all the arts, has done much to create as well as to express the religious emotions, thus modifying more or less deeply the fabric of belief to which at first sight it seems only to minister. The musician has done his part as well as the prophet and the thinker in the making of religion. Every faith has its appropriate music, and the difference between the creeds might almost be expressed in musical notation. The interval, for example, which divides the wild revels of Sibyl from the stately ritual of the Catholic Church is measured by the gulf which severs the dissonant clash of cymbals and tambourines from the grave harmonies of Palestrina and Handel. A different spirit breathes in the difference of the music. End of chapters 29 to 31 of The Golden Bough Recording by Tisto, tysto.com